Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Actually, Fox puts them on more than anybody else, which is sort of shocking to me because Fox has changed a lot. They wouldn't put Sleepy Joe Biden on every time he opened his mouth. You know, they had other networks for that, frankly. This Ben Jarofsky Show, Benny J. Bonus Interview is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J., take it away. Bonus time in the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It's Thursday, November 5th, 2020, two days after the election, and the headline in today's New York Times says it all. Biden builds an edge in crucial states as Trump challenges the vote counts. Yes, Donald Trump is trying to do at, with the courts what he couldn't do at the voting booth, and that is beat Joe Biden. It's pretty clear he's hoping the Supremes ultimately turn this election over to him one way or another. Uh, and we are going to turn things over to my distinguished guest who will introduce himself because he's, he's ready and able to handle all the legal issues that are going to come up uh, with Donald Trump challenging the election. So, uh, distinguished guest, introduce yourself. This is Jim Coogan, trial lawyer, political observer, and occasional uh, poll watcher and observer, uh, ready and willing and able, Ben. Yes, and uh, we've promoted the show uh, all day today, Thursday. It's probably going to drop on Saturday. Uh, about Jim Coogan's going to come in and explain some of the legal issues uh, at stake here with Donald Trump uh, going to court to try to either stop vote counting or extend vote counting in some cases or do recounting uh, in other cases, anything he can do uh, to be victorious. But before we get to that, let's talk about your uh, your uh, your activity in Wisconsin, your experiences in Wisconsin on Election Day. Uh, you were telling me you went up, you put aside your lawyer hat and became a poll watcher. Talk about it. Yeah, Ben. Um, so not the first time, but I've taken it to uh, – be a personal responsibility, uh, not only to vote every election, but also try to contribute in some way. So this particular election, I, I get different organizations saying here, volunteer here, volunteer here. And so I signed up, it was basically with the Wisconsin Democrats to go up and be one of the, uh, onsite live in-person poll observers to be able to help people in any way or, if there's issues, report them to the organization so that they can get the right people involved uh, if that came up or if there was any irregularities during it during the day. Did you see any irregularities? You know, I really didn't. I was, uh, I was assigned to go to a very nice little lakefront city called Cudahy. Uh, it, I believe that is how they pronounce it there. Mm-hmm. And a uh, nice little city. It's, it's right just south of Milwaukee along Lake Michigan. And uh, frankly, it was pr- actually very impressed with the process. They, they have, I want to say it's maybe a 20 something thousand person town. So not very large, but the prior elections, they had five different precincts or I think they call them districts. There. So one would be at the school, one would be at whatever other location, another one at the library, but for COVID reasons to try to consolidate the whole process and try to minimize the number of people and try to be more efficient, uh, you know, the number of in-person volunteers, they, they put it all inside of the high school gym, all five of them in one place. And while that could absolutely have been a recipe for disaster and for chaos, uh, it wasn't. I mean, they, they seem to have done an excellent job in getting the whole process prepared and organizing it so that they could handle all the volume and uh, get people in, get people out. And this also includes, by the way, in Wisconsin's system, what I observed is they take the absentee ballots and the mail-in ballots that are sent in ahead of time, and they process them during the day. So when there were lulls for any one of the five actual machines, because each has its own machine, 
they would go over and bring a batch of them and they have a process where they actually announce absentee ballot processing because uh, a little wrinkle of Wisconsin law, if you chose to do so, you could stand there and say that you object as long as you're a Wisconsin citizen and an eligible voter. And if you could state some grounds for objection, they'd have to, you know, see if your, your challenge actually made any sense. Um, it, that didn't happen either, but they did go through the, the whole uh, ceremony every single time, bringing each batch over to each of the machines. And they did a really fine job. Wait, time important. out. What, what, what would the grounds for objection be? They're very limited. So if you knew, if they said, uh, they announced the name of the person who's, whose uh, ballot was going into the machine. I see. And you knew that person wasn't a Wisconsin resident and therefore wouldn't be eligible. That would be a reason. I you see. 18 years old. It's very, there's very limited grounds. I mean, yeah. you hear that, you think, well, geez, that could gum up the entire process if somebody wanted to do that. Um, but there are maybe four or five different grounds in that, and they'd be very fundamental things like that. Yeah, and so Cause, cause that's independent of the idea that they have the, the outside of the envelope would have to be signed properly. The inside would have to have you know the, the little bubble would have to be filled in for the machine to actually read it. Yeah. And if there was a problem like that, they also had a cure process where they would ident- identify the ballot, contact the person, give them an opportunity to cure it. My inter- at one point I got a report from the county clerk that they did have one of those and that they were the person actually was able to fix it. So their vote got counted. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I assume that there was some concern about whether the person actually lived in Wisconsin. They would just put the ballot aside to be provisional ballot and they would allow the person the opportunity to come in and defend him or herself. I assume that's uh, how they would do it. The the, the larger point, uh, Jim, being that there was sort of um, logic governing the process uh there were rules and regulations governing the process they've done this before Uh, and this leads to the larger discussion we're going to have which is the effort uh, by donald trump to act as though uh, a whole new set of rules and regulations have been created at the last minute to give democrats an advantage and so in such a way they were going to um steal the vote uh, for uh, from Republicans. I could see, just based on what you told me, that if Donald Trump really wanted to sabotage the process, he'd go into Democratic precincts. It sounds like the one you were in was sort of mixed, uh, but he would go into Democratic precincts and just have his people routinely object uh, to ballots. Just whether they knew the person or not, just say, no, that person doesn't live in Wisconsin. And that would really gum things up, wouldn't it? Sure. I mean... If good faith is not an obstacle, do that. <laughs> uh, and I guess maybe interestingly, um, they didn't even do that. They're, they're obviously working very hard at the post-election legal phase right now, but um, things like that, that's in terms of uh, messing with the process, that's a creative idea, Ben, and yeah. it, it doesn't appear to be one of the things that they engaged in. Well, the, I, I, I'm, they, I would be uh, upset for having suggested it to them. This is assuming that any MAGA people are listening to this conversation. If they were, they go, they would rush back to the office. And go, why do we think of this? But you know what? They're so diabolical. They would have thought of that on their own. They just don't have the organization to to mount uh, to get such a counterattack going. But they do have the wherewithal to challenge this election in the courts. Uh, and as I've pointed out many times. They're exceedingly inconsistent in what they're attempting to do. We'll take it state by state. Uh, Again, Joe Biden has not, as I speak, been officially declared the winner of the uh, presidential election. Uh, He will win the popular vote, but uh, the Electoral College, which is how we choose these things, is still up in the air. Uh, But he's won several key states. And in each one of those states, uh, Donald Trump, is uh, mounting uh, a uh, counterattack through the courts. Uh, he's doing that in Wisconsin and in Michigan, which uh, Biden has won, and he's doing it in Pennsylvania. Biden is not, uh, at the a moment, I don't even think he's leading in Pennsylvania as I speak, Jim. For, maybe things have been reversed since I've been talking on the air. But uh, I guess Donald Trump has a sense that the votes will go um, uh to Joe Biden's way. So let's start with Wisconsin. What is Trump up to uh, in the state of Wisconsin in terms of trying to uh, flip the um, the results? So what Donald Trump has the right to do in Wisconsin is to challenge the result 
and ask for a recount given the slim margin of victory. So he has, it's, it's, uh, it's not an automatic recount process. And one thing you're identifying, you're obviously getting to this point. Um, every state administers their election, including for federal office, like the president. And even though all the, all the states vote for president, it's still done individually in each state. And therefore every state has their own version of how the process works and the rules that govern different aspects of it, like a recount. So in Wisconsin, theirs says that with this small of a margin, which according to NBC with 99% of the votes in is 20,534 votes. So it's very small given that the total is 3.2 million. Um, And so that's what they'll do. I mean, within a couple more days, whenever Wisconsin's uh, secretary of state actually certifies it, then they'll go back and do what amounts to a recount, but um, I don't know if you saw this, but it, it seems like that's kind of a something that won't succeed if uh, former governor of Wisconsin, Scott Walker, was even tweeting yesterday that based on his knowledge of the numbers and how things work there, a guy who got elected there twi- or three times, reelected twice, in spite of the fact that he was recalled by the voters of Wisconsin, they then reelected him anyway. Yeah. Um, he thinks it's a, a fruitless attempt uh, and that because of, because the margin is 20,000 people or more that recounting it at best might change the votes by a hundred or a couple hundred votes and therefore it won't come close to flipping the overall result. I agree with him completely. 20,000, that's a lot of votes. And I've sat through a lot of recounts uh, in um, Chicago uh, just a p- correction, uh, Walker was only elected twice, but I guess the recount effort is the third time. So I guess that's, that's uh, yeah, I yeah. giving the credit for that. Um, and uh, the point is, though, of course, it's what Trump is trying to do in Wisconsin completely contradicts what he's trying to do in other states. So in Wisconsin, he's saying he has reason to believe that there was some kind of error in the count that uh, led to him losing by 20,534 votes. And if they go through, if they do a recount, they will make up 20,535 votes. They will find 20,535 votes for him or take away votes for Biden uh, that amounted to the 2535 and enable him to be victorious. So he's asking for a recount. He's asking for actions to be taken after the votes have not only been cast, but counted, Jim. He's, that is completely contradicting what he is asserting in other states. Just wanted to point out that legal inconsistency on the part of Donald Trump. Yes. You, you may find all of his activities this week will be ripe for different instances of being hypocritical, inconsistent, and maybe even without a factual basis for whatever it is he's saying. In other words, yeah. just full of it. Um, um, and uh, we'll get to ultimately whether a court can rule in his favor if he's making inconsistent uh claims in various states, depending on his needs. Let's move to Pennsylvania, which is the exact opposite. What he's doing uh, is in Pennsylvania, sort of the exact opposite of what he's doing in Wisconsin. And again, Pennsylvania, they're not finished with the vote counting. And uh, Joe Biden has, nobody has been declared a winner. Um, So what is he trying to do in in Pennsylvania? Donald Trump is approximately 90,000 votes ahead in Pennsylvania. So the simple answer is he wants everything there to stop. He's been making attempts to limit the amount of uh, counting since even before the election happened because they filed a lawsuit in Pennsylvania to limit the amount of or the number of days that the collectors would be allowed to collect absentee mail-in ballots. That was the subject of a Supreme Court decision that uh, did not change a Pennsylvania Supreme Court interpretation that allowed ballots to continue to be collected up until tomorrow, up until three days after the election. So, um, you know, at this point, and then Trump, of course, claimed that he'd he'd already won Pennsylvania on Tuesday night. He has since continued to tweet and say that they should stop counting there, and his lawyers are working on trying to stop the count there. 
And obviously the biggest, you know, there's a few counties where the numbers are in the mid nineties in terms of the percentages that have been counted, but Philadelphia County is still at 86.4%. So Biden's winning those votes at a four to one margin or a four to one ratio. And that would mean he still could overcome that 90,000 with the additional votes if they are continued to be counted. And the votes that are being counted in Philadelphia County where Biden is winning by a four to one margin, uh, are those votes that have come in uh, through the mail, absentee, or are they votes that were cast uh, on election day? I think the ones that they're counting as of today are, are votes that were mailed in. Got it. Because a day of would have all been processed on the day of, so that should be done. And because of a different rule, that didn't allow any of this counting to start until some of it on the, I think some was election day. Some was even not allowed to begin until Wednesday after the election. So I don't really know how they could count it any faster than they are if they weren't allowed to start until yesterday. Um, That is votes that were done as either dropped off or mailed in. All right. Jim, I'm going to tell you something based on uh, my knowledge of elections. I follow a lot of elections. What Donald Trump is asking for in Philadelphia uh, completely contradicts uh, hundreds and hundreds, <laughs> several hundred years of elections in uh, this country. I, as I think I told you this before we went on the air, as we speak, the 14th Congressional District, not far from where you live, Lauren Underwood versus uh, James Oberweis, they're counting votes. The election was Tuesday. Here it is Thursday. We're having this count. They're counting votes. Uh, there's no official winner de- declared. This happens every election year. Alan Skillicorn, a state rep, not far from where you live, just conceded an election. The votes are being counted up until yesterday. Uh, in, um, in elections throughout the state of Illinois, they're still counting votes even if they've projected a winner. It's effectively a winner has been projected, not officially declared. They're, they're still counting the votes. What Donald Trump is asking for completely contradicts the way we have always done elections, which is you wait till every vote is counted and you work from the assumption that for one reason or another, you just don't have the capacity to count every single vote on the day of the election. What possible legal justification for his request could even the most nimble minded lawyer concoct? Um, well, <laughs> you put me in this position a few times over the years to try to think of what they might be saying. Now, I mean, the specifics of the, the injunctive lawsuit that they filed this afternoon were to ask the court to stop the count or to order the counting stopped until poll observers from the Republican Party could be on site. It's not... It's, if you look at the filing, it's only too long, so they don't really add a lot of additional facts. It seems to be referring to something that was filed either earlier today or possibly yesterday. I don't understand why, if you look at the filing, where they're complaining about um, how much time it's taking for the Philadelphia County election officials to respond to the court's earlier ruling, why they don't just send poll observers over there in the meantime. If that's, if that's what your problem is, you obviously must have people in Philadelphia somewhere. Just have them go, have them drive over there. Um, unless, I guess the other way to look at this is they're deliberately not doing that. Yeah. They're saying to the courts, yeah, this is unfair. It's a partisan process. We've only got Democrat poll observers in there. We need our people in there. And then the judge is saying, all right, we'll send your people. Well, no, no, no. We haven't sent them yet, but they can't start counting until our people are there. Yeah. I mean, that, if I'm reading between the lines, that's just my off-the-cuff interpretation of this um i guess in a way that could be clever i don't know that it would work i don't really know why a judge would continue to allow or involve themselves in granting some relief to a litigant who's taking that position they're given the opportunity to go remedy the situation they should go remedy the situation but uh if that's all this is is some naked attempt to come up with even that transparent of a basis to stop the counting and then somehow they'll just never show up. So the counting can never resume. Um, that is not very clever ultimately. All right. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to put my, go ahead. Did I cut you off there? 
No, I'm just saying it. I think that would fail. Yeah. I'm going to put my, uh, myself on the brain of a Trump lawyer and maybe this is what they're trying. Uh, and keep in mind, ladies and gentlemen, I did not go to law school, so I'm uh, just making this up as I go along, but, uh, they may say, uh, they may at some point ask that every vote counted uh, after they submitted their request to have poll watchers uh, put placed in uh, these rooms where the votes are being counted. Uh, every vote counted should be discarded because they weren't there to see it. And so it works to their advantage to keep counting votes uh, in without the presence of Republican poll watchers because that's more votes to be thrown out. What's your thoughts on that as well, a legal yeah, Sure. And they lay the groundwork by continuing to file these injunctive lawsuits every few hours to say, well, judge, we've been saying this all along that our people should be there. Yeah. And so when they're ultimately counted and they fail to do what they have apparently given, been given the opportunity to do, uh, they'll, they'll still come back and say, well, yeah, this is unfair. There must have been some kind of malfeasance going on. We can't trust these results. It was not monitored bipartisanly and so on. I mean, yeah, that's uh, it's an idea. I, I, I think, you know, we've come back to the question of how biased a, a judge might be in listening to these arguments. I think a smart, fair judge would reject that very, All right. very easily. And that leads me to this. Facts. So in my estimation... When you said smart, fair judge, what popped into my mind was the image of Judge Judy. All right. No nonsense. I don't know if you've ever seen her show. No nonsense. Cut through the BS. Don't try to feed me something that we all know is not true. She would throw that argument that I just raised out the court by saying what you just said. If you were so concerned about how the vote was going down, you had every opportunity to send your poll watchers over there immediately. You knew when the voting was going on. So... The fact that you are not requesting me to to stop the counting because you just have not been you've been too lazy to go over there uh, is not worthy of me listening to anymore. It's out of court. That's Judge Judy. I won't be Judge Judy making the ultimate decision. It will be Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Alito, Justice Clarence Thomas. And um, Justice Coney Barrett, she'll be, uh, and Justice Gorsuch. What's your uh, optimism about them, uh, about their decision that they would make on such an argument? Well, I think what would, uh, the only qualification I have here is I don't know exactly what the rest of the facts here would be. Mm-hmm. Because if they were as uncreative and unconvincing as we've laid them out, I think even a, a group of judges that had every intention of, of deciding, of, of finding a rationale to fit the decision that they want to make mm-hmm. would still struggle to find a rationale that would actually, that they would really want to commit to paper and sign their name to. Um, I don't know, I guess, whether, I mean, that could, it could be just that partisan. It could be just that obvious, uh, it certainly felt that way to, to Democrats in the, in December of 2000 in the Bush v. Gore situation. Um, but at least in that situation, compared to this, there was such a confusing sequence of facts and genuine confusion over these ba- the ballots that were being used in 2000 that at least it, it created the, the opening for something that may have been somewhat in bad faith, but at least could pass a straight face test. Mm-hmm. You could at least show it to your Federalist but Society buddies at a cocktail party, and they wouldn't, they could at least believe it without completely giving up the game entirely and, and just, just being entirely partisan hacks. This here, if this is the best they could do, I think that even, I think even, that's, even in a rigged game, Trump would still lose. All right, I, I agree with you. The, based on that one particular argument, I would think that Gorsuch, <laughs> I have no faith in the others, but I think Gorsuch would join Roberts uh, and go against that at the very least. Uh, before we get to Bush Gore, because it has some relevance, before we get to Bush Gore, can you think of, I think it will come down to these three states, 
by the way, Jim, I believe based on the vote where you just laid out and all the um, voting experts have been saying the same thing, that that four to one margin of the outstanding vote, they always tell you, where are the outstanding votes? And then you can make a projection. And in this case, the outstanding votes are in a heavily Democratic area. So based on the raw numbers, you can do the math. Biden is probably going to win. In Pennsylvania, which case he will re- regained uh, the blue wall. He will put it, put it back together. The wall that was not there for uh, Hillary Clinton. Uh, and so it's going to the uh, the election will uh, swing on these three states to a certain degree. So um, before I go to Bush Gore, can you see any other possible arguments that the Trump side would make to try to undo the, the results in Pennsylvania if they go against them? Well, I, I think the only other way they could try to do this is to go back and revisit the claims that they made in the preemptive lawsuit that they filed where the Pennsylvania Supreme Court decided that votes received up, and in, up to and including Friday. And it actually says, I think it said, regardless of whether there was a legible postmark on the ballot, that as long as it was received by Friday, it would be included. That's what the, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court interpreting Pennsylvania law said that that's what should happen. And the Trump group tried to bring that in front of the United States Supreme Court, and there was no majority. It was a four-to-four uh, non-decision. So what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court said was allowed to stand I, I could imagine them trying to revisit that and saying that that was wrong, trying to get Judge or Justice Coney Barrett to sign on to a five to four decision to revisit it. I think that would be awfully difficult to do because people were still, I mean, as a, as a response, I'm sure the lawyers for the Democratic Party for Joe Biden's campaign, among other things, would raise the question of, well, voters heard about this news almost two weeks ago, or I think it was maybe around the 20th or the 21st, that that decision was issued. So they were counting on that if they put something in the mail on Friday, figuring that it would show up in the mail by this Friday. The wisdom of that decision on the voters' part, notwithstanding, um, why wouldn't that person be entitled to rely upon something that was already decided? So could would, would Justice Coney Barrett be uh, partisan enough and completely willing to, to lose all of her credibility in her first Supreme Court decision <laughs> that anybody would know about? Yeah. Uh, that's a huge gambit. And, you know, the other thing, Ben, that I will say that, you know, we haven't gone state by state just yet. The problem that all this may have, the problem with Trump's um, last-minute gambit or a Frankly, he's been. How long has he been saying that he needs the Supreme Court to decide this election for him? It's been at least a month. Yeah. So I mean, he probably knew he was going to lose all along, or he didn't care whether he was going to win or lose. He just wanted to have this as a backup. If he loses Georgia and Arizona and Nevada, um, yeah. it's really hard to litigate all of the states and have them hang together all at once when. Even if Pennsylvania got tossed out at this point, if Nevada and, and Arizona get called, Biden's still the president. You can, you know, nobody's going to litigate over what happened in Pennsylvania if there's already 270 counted votes or uh, counted electoral college votes. And, and as I as I mentioned to you earlier, you're, what you're saying is absolutely correct. Particularly, how difficult a challenge it'll be, even to get the most partisan judge to stitch together a justification for it. He would be asking the judges to rule one way on counting votes in Pennsylvania, rule a completely different way regarding counting votes in say Arizona and Nevada and Wisconsin. There would be no legal consistency whatsoever to the arguments he would be, he would, he, he would be cherry picking his argument state by state and asking the judges to just <laughs> throw out whatever precedent they made in uh, Nevada in order to make a different one to, to work for Pennsylvania. That's well, asking a lot from a judge. Go ahead. I mean, no, you're, you're right. I, I thought about that for the last couple of days in trying to game out how this would play out. I can imagine, I mean, there is, it's not impossible to craft something that says we sh- you should throw out all these ballots in Milwaukee because of some faulty process but you should 
certify all these results in Arizona because we can't find a, a fault. It's a perfect process. He loves the word perfect. So that would, that would really be consistent with his message. Um, I mean, I, I don't think that's impossible to do. And I certainly don't put it past the group that would be litigating these cases on his behalf, but taken as a whole, if, if for some reason they were consolidated, I mean, this is all be sort of unprecedented if that's how it worked, but um, maybe that is something that could happen given that, that they would be interdependent results. Um, yeah. I mean, you're, you're definitely right that that would create other problems beyond just whatever was lacking in the facts of whatever they were claiming they were making in that individual state and saying why that state should have stopped or why this other state should have continued um, to be in an overarching way to try to be picking and choosing explicitly the states that you have to win it certainly belies the notion that you have any principle whatsoever, but that's not going to slow him down here. No. And, 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 and I openly concede that he will try it if he feels <laughs> it's his only way to win. I, I, I'm just pointing out how preposterous it is and how uh, utterly without any kind of uh, overriding principle other than wanting the court to undo what the voters did. Yeah. And by any means necessary. Uh, and eventually, Jim, we run into the problems left uh, that he's facing left over from Bush versus Gore. And let's bring in Bush versus Gore. Uh, and you can give a backdrop on that one. But essentially, my recollection of Bush versus Gore from the 2000 election is that the Supreme Court said at some point we just have to end it. And we have to get on with democracy. And they were, they were worried about a uh, January 21st, uh, the inauguration coming up, and it's just, let's end this. Sooner or later, we just have to end it. And then Scalia famously said, just get over it, Democrats. Uh, the same argument could be made to Trump. Dude, you, Wisconsin, you can't, you can't just keep counting votes until you magically somehow or other Eliminate 20,534. You can't just keep counting votes in Pennsylvania until you throw out. I guarantee you there's going to be a recount in Pennsylvania as well, Jim, if uh, he doesn't prevail. Sure. So at some point, I could see Bush versus Gore being used against Donald Trump if he's not, uh, if Joe Biden is declared the winner. Your thoughts on all this? Well, I mean, that's that. Ultimately, one of the things that the majority in Bush versus Gore, which was they were all nominally Republican judges who decided that on a five to four decision, Mm -hmm. essentially said that because of the flaws in what was being uh, the flaws that were happening in in the counties where there was controversy, number one, and what they termed problems with the the decision from the Florida Supreme Court, which is what was being appealed to. It went up to the Florida Supreme Court, and then Bush's attorneys took that to the United States Supreme Court and said, you got to do something about this, guys. Um, They they identified additionally that the Florida's Supreme Court's decision kind of left too many questions open in terms of how ballots could continue to be counted, because just to give listeners a little bit of background, since it's been it's been 20 years, Ben. Um, wow. <laughs> so at the time, and this is, this is, I forgot one of these details. So I looked at it this week. I did recall that George W. Bush's brother, Jeb was the governor of Florida at the time. Yeah. And that Catherine Harris was friends of his campaign basically. And she was the attorney general of Florida, but I'd forgotten that the secretary of state, I believe, was actually part of Gore's Florida operation. Mm. So there actually was some uh, mm. conflicts of interest on both sides of this thing. I, I forgot about the Gore part. Uh, Bob Butterworth, he's, I'm sorry, he was the attorney general. Bob Butterworth was the attorney general and a, and a Democrat and part of the Gore campaign. So obviously these, these folks had, uh, they were very deliberate in how they organized their campaign and, and knowing that they'd have to target the state of Florida. And boy, were they right in the sense that they both had a chance to win it because um, what the five to four United States Supreme Court decision ultimately said, as you just mentioned, is this has been too problematic and there, and there was a, a deadline that Florida would have to certify their results by 
in order to meet the electoral college congregation. Mm -hmm. So I think that was a December 18th deadline or something like that, that they would have to submit their, choose their electors who would actually participate in the electoral college a month before inauguration, but that was still the deadline in December. Um, So they came out with a decision within like two days or three days or something like that by December 12th and said, we have to go, we're going to, we're going to eliminate all these other suggestions for the Florida Supreme Court in terms of how to count these Chad ballots and these overcounts and these undercounts because it's inconsistent. Instead, we're going to determine that the certification by Catherine Harris is good enough and that's going to stand. Essentially blaming it on the underlying problems and that there were too much, there was too much inconsistency. So it was an equal protection argument, um, even though there were multiple opinions written by, I think almost every single one of the nine justices at the time. So you cobbled together five of them and that, and all five of those still agreed in, in the result that it should go back to the Harris certification, which put George W. Bush ahead by just a few hundred votes. Yeah. Uh, so what relevance does that have to uh, the disputes that you see coming up regarding Biden, Trump? Well, it, it absolutely could be part of it um, in even if they weren't citing it as direct precedent, but in the spirit of it always depends on what did the other underlying court do? And then that depends on what was the underlying issue that you were raising. So as a litigant, we're talking about, you know, this is a politics show. And sometimes the politics intersects with, even the election politics intersects with the legal system. If you're trying to take your election result, which fundamentally is something where the people are casting a ballot on one side or another, well, you know, there's multiple candidates, but ultimately in national elections, it's either one party or the other that's going to win that thing. So they are casting a ballot however they're casting it, but you want to rip that away from them and take it over across the street to the courthouse, you have to have some basis. You have to be able to cite to a violation of election law, something that was done inappropriately. But also consider you're not suing the people in that situation. You're suing the election board. You're you're suing the individual clerk of that county or possibly the secretary of state for the state who went to go certify the results. So ultimately, you need to go, you're, you're trying to target some kind of flaw in the process. And it has to be not only a serious enough violation that you can prove, but also something that would affect the outcome of the race. Yeah. And that's really where, um, if you're talking about how, how would Bush v. Gore come into play, well, let's think about the spirit of it. You know, whether, I mean, I think there were some serious issues with how that was decided, but the spirit was, if there are so many problems, then we have to go a certain direction. But at least we can cite to a situation where at one point in time, the state actually had a result and it was certified by their person. Yeah. Um, breaking this down just a slightly different way, the general one of the supposed principles of conservative judges in this country, at least they say, mm. they, like to, they like to stay out of state law issues unless there's a damn good reason to do it. Yeah. And they don't, they don't want to be in the business of inflicting federal remedies on states unless there's some constitutional reason to do so. Now, equal protection would be a basis for that. But if you can't really prove that equal protection violation, then, you know, it doesn't matter how many Clarence Thomases you can get on that decision. There's nothing for them to work with. Yeah. No, I, I having listened to you, I think uh, that if – the vote counting continues the way we think it's continuing, the way the experts are projecting based on the outstanding vote. And um, Biden wins Pennsylvania and wins Nevada uh, and perhaps even wins Georgia. There's some thoughts that the vote outstanding votes in Georgia that are being calculated. God knows what lawsuit Trump would file for Georgia um, and holds on to Arizona. Uh he would be asking he would be asking just for a blatantly uh, political decision yep. from the judges well there's Ben just to give you one little wrinkle and we'll, we'll be able to look back at this snapshot in time right now it says Georgia is down to their last 93 estimated expected additional counts and the spread is 9 
9,600 votes. Not even that. 9,500 9, and something votes. So it's very plausible that Joe Biden wins that state as well. And, and yeah, and- we'd be looking to overturn an election where even if they were close, Biden would have won close, well over 300 electoral college votes. And as it stands right now, he is roughly 4 million ahead in the overall vote, but with 15 million more, 16 million more votes to be counted more or less nationwide, he'll win by seven, eight, nine million votes. Yeah. Again, not relevant to the who becomes president, but that's how many more Americans who voted would have voted for Joe Biden instead of Donald Trump. Yeah. No, that just adds to it. That just, I, I agree with you. I hadn't even raised that point, but you're absolutely correct, uh, Jim. That just adds to it. Like the sheer popular vote. I mean, Gore, again, the margin between Bush and Gore was closer. Uh, it was down to one state, not multiple states that would have to be flipped. And so it all came down to one state in Gore versus Bush. So in some ways, it was easier. Did <laughs> you follow what I'm saying? Uh, they would have to be making, again, multiple decisions in multiple states and sometimes contradicting the viewpoint they were taking in another state in order to uh, deliver the election to Trump and who, by the way, lost by seven million or so nationwide. That would be staggering, Jim. It would. I mean, and, you know, at one point or another in that process, we've come back to the significance of John Roberts on this court and the role that he has played since I want to say about the year 2003 or four, when he was appointed by George W. Bush. Um, He's been the chief justice all that time. And his his role is either a quote unquote swing vote or something, something along the lines of a swing vote. Uh, If anything, he does seem to have very adept political knowledge and has a, 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 does have his sights set on maintaining some level of legitimacy of the court. I, you know, a guy like you probably doesn't believe in, in the legitimacy of this court in a lot of decisions that have come down in the last few years um, because you look at it carefully enough and you can see just how, how, nakedly partisan some of them are no matter how they try to cloak it in originalism or whatever other ism they want to use all right we'll close it down uh jim coogan with a talk about a uh, issue here in the state of illinois away from trump uh and uh biden in the election and that is the uh, election battle uh to retain a supreme court justice thomas kilbride it looks like he lost that battle he won't get the 60 percent he needs to be retained uh, why don't you tell folks a little about the issues at stake here and who was up against him and why? <laughs> yeah, so so this uh, Illinois elects our judges. And so when you're a Supreme Court judge, you're up for retention every 10 years. And that's what happened this time around. Um, this became the most expensive Supreme Court, just, just, Supreme Court retention or any other kind of election in Illinois history this time around. Mm-hmm. And... The, the reason why it became the most expensive actually con- is consistent with the last time we had an election that set the record at about nine and a half million dollars it was spent, which was back in 2004 when, and if you can imagine the whole point of why these are so, why his retention was so important and why the fifth district was so important back then is the ideological balance of the court was in the balance. So back in, in 04, it was a question of whether there would be a, uh, whether they could add a Republican judge or whether it would remain a Democrat majority. And now in, in 2010 or 20, Thomas Kilbride was up for retention. Um, back in 2010, they went after him for similar reasons. It was business interests that did not want him to be on there to try to tip the balance of power so that the, if they pass laws in Springfield, like, for example, in the mid-2000s, believe it or not, even with your buddy Rob Bogoyevich, a Democrat <laughs> and governor, um, they passed a medical malpractice caps bill, which I'm pretty intimately familiar with because one of the things that I do is I work on behalf of people who have been injured in unfortunate but improper medical errors. And so they put 
caps of a of that actually limited the amount of money you could get if you went to court. Even if the jury said, we think this was so bad, you should get $5 million, that would just get wiped away by these caps. Well, turns out that's unconstitutional in, in Illinois. It was unconstitutional in the 80s, it was unconstitutional in the 90s, and it was a, unconstitutional again in the 2000s because they keep trying to write those bills even though it's not consistent with the law in this great state. So <clears throat> this time, again, it was business interests, like you mentioned in your own show, uh, the, the, the wealthiest of which are Ken Griffin and Ken Uline and some of these other folks. Their ultimate goal is to destroy businesses like mine, where an average guy, someone who can't afford to retain a lawyer for $500 an hour, can hire someone on a contingency basis and go get justice. Um, if you could put caps on those cases, then what it means is it may be impossible to pursue them. And that's basically closing the courthouse door for people who have a tragic medical case and it was really somebody's fault. You know, we're talking about cases where you can prove that it was someone's fault. Or once they get that, once they get their foot in the door, the next thing that would go is product cases where something blows up in your house or your airbag doesn't deploy something, but you know, your loved one's killed in a, in a crash where otherwise they would have been saved. Uh, they'll put caps on those things or they'll just bar them all together. I mean, this is the road you would go down, and one of the safeguards for the people in this state has been the Illinois Supreme Court. So that was why they targeted this, this uh, seemingly inconsequential thing. Most people don't think about su state Supreme Court decisions in their day-to-day -day lives. I'm, I'm willing to bet even a very well politically informed audience like yours, Ben, probably doesn't think about this too often. Mm -hmm. And if you pulled the average guy on the street 99 out of 100 couldn't name one Illinois Supreme Court judge or even the last consequential decision. But it's one of those things that functions in the background. And so here they targeted a guy who um, any bar association would give him high marks. There's no, there's no legal criticism of his capacity or his uh, fairness or his, his ability to write a good decision and be well-reasoned. Um, this was pure politics. Yeah. Which is, uh, one more time, I'm going to uh, hammer home on one of my favorite themes, utter hypocrisy of the Republican Party, because they're the first ones to tell you, keep politics out of it when it comes to Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation. Keep politics out of it when it comes to Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation. Just let's see what the, uh, the leading legal minds have to say about them. You know, what do the what does the, the bar association say? How are they ranked uh, by law professors? Just talk about their sheer brilliance. Don't talk about the political ramifications. Uh, and and the part of that that, you know, you know me by now, Jim, that really gnaws at me is just um, the blatant lack of just like a principle in the in the matter. Uh, I could st I could take losing if a person has a more reasoned, uh, logical argument. I could have my mind changed. There's a libertarian writer who writes for the Sun-Times, and I find him interesting, even though um, I don't always agree with him, because I have the feeling that he's applying the same logic to every single issue. He's a libertarian. You know, he doesn't believe in overriding issues. He's a little weak on the uh, legalization of uh, drugs, but put that aside. By and large, he's pretty consistent. With, with the Republican Party over the last 30 years, no consistency. They argue whatever they have to argue at that moment to win an argument and then reverse it a little while later. Uh, and so I see that play here with Kilbride. They wanted a judge who was favorable to business interests, business interest and hostile to consumer interests. And so they used Michael Madigan. They hung Michael Madigan around <laughs> Kilbride, uh, even though he has nothing to do with Michael Madigan. Nothing. Utter hypocrisy, Jim Coogan, in my humble opinion. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's kind of unfortunate in that regard because – uh, it's, th there was never, even in the ads that they blanketed across the state and across, uh, television markets that would vote in the third district. Um, all they had was, were images where Madigan and Kilbride happened to be in the same room. I mean, they didn't, they didn't expand upon that and explain why for some reason Kilbride found in favor of something that Madigan wanted for some corrupt reason or anything even close to that. So it, it was, um, obviously, they have really identified their most effective thing that they can 
whack Democrats over the head with in Illinois because there's just so much surrounding Madigan, you know, so many legitimate legal things surrounding him and so much animosity that's attached to him at this point that, you know, even in Cook County, you've got a lot of folks who have negative opinions, but anywhere outside of it, it's, you know, it's an 80, 20 yeah. ratio. That's, that's negative about anything. Isn't associated. Uh, yeah. And uh, on a side conversation, I'm not going to raise this with Jim Coogan. This is a political uh, talk show. We're talking about legal issues, but uh, JB Pritzker just announced before we did this interview uh, that he thinks that uh, Madigan should step down as chair of the party. So we'll be discussing this at length. Uh, future Ben Jarofsky shows the political end of it. Uh, just closing with this. So it's uh, the vacancy. He's no longer retained. He's not on the bench. So his fellow justices, there's uh, six of them, will convene to pick a replacement. Does it have to be uh, – what What happens if it's a 3-3 tie, do you know? Well, interestingly, because it's never happened before, in, in 200 years of being Illinois, we've never had a Supreme Court judge not be retained so it's a little, un- it is literally unprecedented and a little uncertain. There's actually a possibility he might be the tie-breaking vote in choosing his own uh, replacement to serve this out because, importantly, the replacement will only serve until the next time there's an election. Mm-hmm. So the only constitutional provision here is, is one that says someone should be appointed to a seat like this where there's not going to be an election for at least 90 days and the next election won't be until 2000. 22. So in this situation, he actually may be involved in choosing the person to replace him. Whether you think there's a problem with that or not, I think it's because the the Illinois Constitution is silent on what happens in that situation. We had something sort of similar to that, uh, sort of the same ballpark dealing with a, a state rep who had to step down. And then it, he was part of the uh, the group of committeemen, Democratic committeemen, who uh, uh, slated someone to replace him, Arroyo. So uh, it, it there is, that's right. That's right. Uh, you know, uh, it, I guess you could say uh, that's in the same ballpark. But we'll be watching this. And then it will be a very heated, a very contested race uh, in 2022 to replace Kilbride uh, with a, a permanent uh, replacement. Lots of money will be thrown in that race. Uh, and, um, you know, the Republican, I'm sure, will be the pro-business person who will be v- determined to uh, eradicate consumer protection laws. And then the uh, Democrat would be more or less an advocate of consumers. All right, uh, Jim, thanks so much. It's always a blast talking to you. And, uh one way or another, we'll bring you back probably next month. That will be December, and you'll get your thoughts on what the judges did. Did they uh, concoct, like, pure fiction to justify giving the election to Donald Trump? Or did they just listen to Judge Rob- Justice Roberts and say, yeah, all right. Ben, it's but, always my pleasure. Keep the faith, buddy. I will. The great Jim Coogan. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. <laughs>